actually going to recall the example where you and I had gone to Canton to the trade days. Uh, and yeah, uh, we man. were just kind of walking through, and you know, kind of looking around. We had purchased a few things. And as we walked past this one booth, this guy points at me and he goes, you know, just like an auctioneer, well, you're sold. And he said that for Yeah, real? he's like, you know, just like auctioneers, you know, that fast yeah. talking. And then he pointed at me and he says, sold. And I was like, what the? Huh? <laughs> Who is he talking to? And I looked around and Carl said, what did he say? I said, you heard what he said. He said, no, I didn't. I said, he looked at me and said, sold as if I was a slave yeah. and you had purchased me. Yeah. We put porn to shame. <laughs> the womb isn't just about where I give Talk birth to about babies. It. The Talk. womb is about where we give birth to perfect. Talk. I was basically all of her nevers. I never imagined my journey would inspire people all over the world. You have set a standard in love. I was dating a young lady who helped me heal. Wow, this woman is a ride or die. The conversations have really helped me to change my perspective on relationships. I had 19 attorneys at one time that were speaking into my ear. 19, 19 attorneys. attorneys. My, my, my last relationship. You know, it did a number on me. What you did not know is I had a whole little situation lined up that evening. Your transparency is literally setting people free. And you're unique. You ain't like nobody else. I, I noticed that right away. You can make me cry. <laughs> um, thank you. I received that. Let one of them Barbie doll bodies walk over here. He gonna say, dear future wifey. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They gonna go right in that box. I'm Latarius R. Whitfield. And welcome to the Dear Future Wifey Podcast. Welcome to the Dear Future Wifey Podcast. I'm your host, Latera Sar Whitfield. Listen, are you still shacking up with us? If you're still shacking up with us, come on. Can we just get a commitment and hit that subscription button? Make sure you turn on your notification bell so you'll be notified about upcoming episodes. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Go ahead and rate this video. Go and give us five stars. Leave a comment so that uh, a lot of people can learn about the Dear Future Wifey podcast. Well, we're in season five on our road to 100,000 subscribers. I'm very intentional about the guests that I have on the podcast. Last episode, we had um, Sekou and Maddie, an African-American man uh, about to get married to a white woman, which just happened this past Saturday. Shout out to them. So proud and happy for them. A lot of y'all found so much value in their love stories. Well, now we're about to do the opposite. I got my buddies on the podcast, been knowing them for years. So without further ado, welcome to the Dear Future Wifey podcast. My homies, Cassie and Carl Robinson. How y'all doing? Hey, <laughs> doing great. Carl, you, you're a little nervous? Nah. All right, so he good, so he good. <laughs> All right, now, Cassie, you and I were talking right before we hit the record button, and I said, if you could name this episode, what would you call your love journey, and what would you, and what did you say? Enduring love. Enduring love. Why do you say enduring love? Well, we've endured a lot uh, through the course of our marriage. We've been married 30 years. 30 years. Uh, hasn't been easy. You know, I'm pretty much power to the people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I love, you know, and I embrace my authenticity. I embrace my blackness, my essence, uh, Nubian queen. I own that. I wear that. And I've never compromised in that. 
And because of that, sometimes, you know, people have a difficult time embracing that. Yeah. Um, and then he's never been Eminem or Jay-Z. Yeah. He's always been an authentic white male. Yes, that's what I and, love about uh, him. That's the, that's the reason, you know, that it works. But we've had to endure a lot of uh, prejudice and racism and a lot of indifference because of both of our stand to be ourselves uniquely. You said something that, that resonates. You said he is authentically who he is. Why is that important for him not to be, you know, um, a white man trying to simulate and be black? Uh, Carl, every time I've, I've been around him, he is authentically who he is. Why is that important to you? Well, it was important to me because I feel like if he was, you know, all the time trying to be, you know, relevant to me, you know, throwing out colloquialisms and slangs that he felt like I wanted to hear, I wouldn't be getting the authentic him. Right. I feel like he would have just been trying to be who he thought I needed him to be or wanted right. him to be. I was attracted to him because he was his authentic self. He was this white guy, kind of nerdy, you know, a little bit quirky, a little quiet <laughs> he said, and reserved. He, said he, wasn't nerdy. he wasn't nerdy. He was he was. He, he was, was a, a little bit nerdy. He was a little bit nerdy. He thought he was a G, but he was a little bit nerdy. But it worked for me. Yeah. It was working. Whatever you were doing, G, it was OG. working. Little G. OG. Yeah. OG. <laughs> it worked for me. He was his authentic self. And, you know, he stood, you know, in his space. He was comfortable in his skin. And those are the kinds of things that I'm attracted to anyway. Confidence yeah. is very attractive. So, Carl, let's take us back. How'd you meet old Cassie over here? Uh, we actually met at work. I was working... Uh, downtown Dallas with her sister mm. and I went on vacation and I came back and there she was. That's, that's why I asked my friends, who's that? <laughs> oh, that's Brenda's sister. She's kind of mean. <laughs> I said, really? Okay. So we befriended each other and went on from there. No. So you said she, she gave you the, <laughs> she said that she was mean and you still said, Oh, I want to get to know her. <laughs> You're yeah. glutton for punishment. Yeah, mean doesn't bother me any. <laughs> so do you remember what you said to her? How'd you try to foster a relationship or friendship with her? We actually had a, a third wheel for a little while, and the three of us would go to lunch all the time. So oh, okay, I see how you did that. Got us a little closer. And yeah. She was dating somebody else at the time, and I talked her into getting rid of that person. <laughs> we moved on from there. Cassie, yeah. he done, he done, he done pulled a little player role and said you got to move around. Told, told you to make old boy move around. He had game. He really did. I mean, looking back, I'm like, he really did that. No, I mean, the guy was kind of ousting himself because, I mean, he, he, you know, he was messing up. Yeah. So it was just kind of like the right alignment of situations. Yeah. And so yeah. Carl just gave, told you to give him an extra nudge to get him out give the way. Give him an extra nudge. Yeah. So, Carl, what did you see in her? You see it right here. <laughs> very positive black woman. Who's yeah. Very self-confident. Walks with her head up. Owns the room when she when she arrives. Couldn't say more about her. Aww. Like, y'all about to kiss right now. What y'all <laughs> so yeah, sweet. Y'all are not about to kiss. Yeah, y'all looking at each other like y'all about to kiss. That's what y'all look like. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. So, nice. So, so when you think about this, now we're talking about y'all met, y'all been married for 30 years, right? 30 years. So how long ago did y'all meet? Well, we dated for three years. Let me say that. We met around 88, 89, right around So we got to go back into the mindset of people back in 88, 89. That's what I'm saying. Now it's still, interracial couples still get the side eye. Mm -hmm. But back then, it Not wasn't like just. back then. <laughs> tell us about that. What was it back then? Uh, it was pretty serious back then. We got to look from everybody practically. Yeah. 
Did you get any threats? Did you get any hate mail? Did you get people throwing stuff at your house? Like, what what, what did you experience Not when you like walked that, around? But we had situations that were obviously racist situations that we just had to work our way through. Give us an example. I want people to get context about, we uh, talk about enduring love. What did that really look like? For instance, we went to a farmer's market one time, and, mm -hmm. and we were going to buy two big grocery bags full of fruit. And the owner decided to take our son, who is who's very chocolate, Mm -hmm. And he was five or six at the time and, mm -hmm. and say that he had been stealing fruit from the stand and, and said he had it in his pocket. And I go, that's obviously a lie. Yeah. I had him turn his pockets out and nothing was there. Yeah. I said, by the way, keep these two bags of fruit because we don't want them anymore. Yeah. He just decided to just say, hey, yeah, yeah. Because you brought, you, brought you brought a child into the marriage. I did. I brought my son into the marriage. And my son is chocolate. Like, he can't pass for Carl's son. <laughs> it is clear that he is a black kid yeah. that this very white man is now parenting. So that was one example. I was actually going to recall the example where you and I had gone to Canton to the trade days. Uh, and yeah, uh, we yeah. were just kind of walking through, and you know, kind of looking around. We had purchased a few things. And as we walked past this one booth, this guy points at me and he goes, you know, just like an auctioneer, well, you're sold. And he said that for Yeah, real? he's like, you know, just like auctioneers, you know, that fast yeah. talking. And then he pointed at me and he says, sold. And I was like, what the, huh? <laughs> Who is he talking to? And I looked around and Carl said, what did he say? I said, you heard what he said. He said, no, I didn't. I said, he looked at me and said, sold, as if I was a slave yeah. and you had purchased me. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, nice little calm, quiet Carl became, of course, unglued. And it could have been an explosive situation. We chose to take the high road. We addressed him. <laughs> quite sternly and strongly but we you know we walked away and in that moment we realized we had made a decision that although the rest of the world it appeared mm -hmm. wasn't on board with it that we had to commit to each other every day we had to wake up and recommit to the fact that this is a decision that we made and we're going to be married to each other regardless and you know in realizing that we were making that choice we had to also factor in that it wasn't going to be easy yeah and it has hasn't been easy and not just outwardly from like you know other people from you know white race black race but even from within the household of faith like even from within church we've experienced you know a lot of indifference tell, tell us about that um church is a place of <clears throat> well we want it to be a place of uh inclusivity where we believe that people from all walks of life can come together but i found that a lot of churches are the most segregated uh, organizations in the United States. What did you experience in um, that ideology and that mindset? Well, I'm, I'm sure we both have our experiences. Me, of course, you and I were both at Covenant Church around right. the same time, and Covenant being, you know, a, a very multicultural church, among many other places that I've sang at throughout the course of my career. But, you know, these incidents happened, unfortunately, at Covenant Church, where I was platform, you know, I was up on the stage, I was singing, I was leading worship and doing all of those things. So that brought a certain light. Yeah. And that brought a certain kind of a false um, like likeness to me, you know, yeah. People would, you know, kind of be endeared to the fact that, you know, people like the light and they like the fact that I was on the stage and they assigned a certain fame to me. So yeah. they would be fake, you know, and, and pretend to care. But I, I started to notice a difference in the way that I was uh, interacted with and the way that Carl was interacted with when I wasn't there. 
Oh. Like, for example, I would walk up on conversations where people would be having a conversation and interacting with him very, very peaceably and, and very favorably. And when I would come, it would shut down completely. Let's get silent. It would get silent or they would speak to him and embrace him or address him. And I'm literally hand in hand with him and say absolutely nothing to mm. me. And this is a household of faith. Like yeah. This is a community of believers where, as you have well said, it's supposed to be about inclusion and it's supposed yeah. to be about harmony and love and, and, and unity and all of that. And in many instances, it wasn't. It just wasn't. <sighs> so that's where I met Cassie. Cassie used to lead worship at Covenant Church and I remember going there and the church is a multicultural church. And I was like, who is this black woman right here singing the <laughs> house down? And it was such a beautiful worship experience. And then one day I looked up and you were gone. And I was like, what, what happened? What happened? It's, and then, and then because covenant had a great <clears throat> thing working where it was balanced. Right. It, it felt like it was, I don't know if it was by design, but it was like, black music day <laughs> you know it's like mm -hmm. <laughs> gospel day and then ccm uh services right. so it was like a it was a good little balance and then it just became a hundred percent ccm right. and then i was like what what happened what happened to cassie and arthur dyer what happened what, what happened what yeah. happened yeah. uh and I, I I loved how the Lord would use you during worship and praise and worship, actually, uh, to lead Thank us you. into the throne room of God. And so <clears throat> that was our first connection mm -hmm. um, through the spirit. And that's what I love. I love that. That was so long ago. My goodness. I know. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. It was, it's no, been no, a long time. It's, it's about been a long time. Back in 2002. To when did y'all first start going there? Because I know I went there in two thousand and it was definitely the two thousands. Yeah, that we were yeah. there. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. So you met her. What when you saw her, Carl? I know a lot of times people say, "Well, we don't see race," mm -hmm. and sometimes I think that's just the biggest lie. Right. So when you saw her, did you see her as a black woman, or did you see her as just a woman? Oh, no, I knew she was a black woman. <laughs> there was no denying that. <laughs> um, it's what you choose to do with that. Mm. Do, you, do you focus on that or do you take note of it and move on? Yeah. And I just I took note of it and liked the whole package, so decided so, to move on with it. So when you think about that in that time, that was a risk, a risk for both of y'all. So how... How did your family receive her? I mean, you well, first of all, let me ask you, had you dated a black woman prior to her? No. So it's the first time you ever dated <clears throat> a black woman. Was there a little angst or nervousness or like, I don't know if I'm going to walk down the street and some black guys can come beat me up or, you know, like, what did you feel? I Take us back to that, that moment. But um, I will say that I knew most of my family was not going to be happy about it. So when I did make the decision, that's part of the reason we dated for three years. Oh, yeah. When I did make the decision, there was no other reason I wouldn't want this woman as my wife. Yeah. Then I didn't ask my family. I told them. Mm. And I said, if y'all don't like it, we don't have to come around. Straight up like that. Just like that. How'd you feel when he said that? Um, I felt seen. 
Uh, I felt valued. I felt heard. Um, I felt wanted. And th those were all things that I had struggled uh, very heavily with. Uh, just my trust in men was pretty much destroyed. Unfortunately, I had had some violations pretty early on in my life. And that just kind of tore down, you know, yeah. in, any ability to really, really trust um, men uh, to love me for me and, and, and really trust in the whole process of proper love. You know, because when someone violates you, then, you know, your whole frame of reference for proper love is, is it goes out the window. Yeah. It's destroyed. So he restored my belief and my faith and proper love. And what I'm saying is love without unrealistic demands. Mm. Uh, he was willing to love me in spite of the fact that I wasn't having any foolishness. You know, I, I wanted to be honored i wanted to be respected and he gave me that without me asking for it and i had to take note of that because generally you have to kind of set those those boundaries and those ground rules when you're dating but with carl it came very naturally mm. and and it said to me that how tenacious he was to prove his love for me despite the fact that early on i wasn't giving him a whole lot to work with yeah because he said you were mean when he says that what do you think about when you say what when he said your sister said you were mean, what? <laughs> Explain Well, that. I was a little mean. I really was. I mean, I was just like hands off, no nonsense. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was navigating a lot of anger uh, because of some of the violation that yeah. I had endured. Um, um, I was a single mom at the time. And, you know, to be a black woman in America... Mm. You know, you have to have a little bit of edge. Yeah. I mean, I, I have an eyebrow up on any black woman in America who doesn't have a little bit of edge yeah, to her just yeah. because of where we had to start from and all that we have to navigate and endure yeah. as African-American women. So I had that piece going on, too. You know, I was a single mom and, you know, just fresh out of a situation with my son's father that wasn't savory. It wasn't favorable, um, you know, and it was a form of violation as well. And, you know, having to deal with all of that. So I was like, look, if you coming correct don't come you know and then the two guys he didn't tell you this the two guys that were his buddies that he sat by at work yeah what a notch in the belt kind of guys i mean they sit up and talk about yeah man you know i had this one and that one and he would laugh at their jokes so i was like oh he a dog too well, they were funny he know yeah he knew they were dogs he said they were and he gonna laugh at their jokes i was like uh-uh ain't no chance for him you know so i had pretty much judged him yeah. i was like he's just like them yeah so in my mind you know our friend that we had in common that we would go to lunch with and she would say nice things about him i was like mm -mm, no nah, here dog <laughs> and he proved me wrong every time we went to lunch he proved me wrong the conversation was easy mm. it was good i'm very attracted to a strong mind i'm attracted to high intellect mm -hmm. i consider myself of high intellect and yes. so i want to be able to navigate multiple conversations and not lose you in conversation <laughs> couldn't lose him in fact he's really brilliant yeah just a brilliant guy and then he was non-judgmental i mean it, it, it was a nun it was an undemonizing kind of yeah. environment you know he knew that i was christian he knew that you know i had christian values and you know he also knew that he wasn't really in that spiritual place where he hadn't really been going to church in a long time but he didn't come at me um with a lot of expectations or a lot of demands. And that for me was very unusual. So y'all just established a solid friendship. Then, a basically. solid friendship, a solid friendship. And you know, I think there was fear involved in of the course. beginning, you of know, course. from both of us, you oh, know, he yeah. was afraid of, you know, what his family would think. He was a little bit governed by that. And I certainly was governed by that. Cause yeah. I'm telling you, <laughs> I tell all my friends, 
And my friends, I really don't have to tell. You know, my family knows this too. But for those who don't, I'm pretty much power to the people. I consider myself two shakes from a Black Panther. I mean, you will not meet another African-American woman more self-aware, more self-assured, you know, of her essence than myself yeah so just entertaining the whole idea of stepping outside of my norm of what i expected of what i saw in my future husband yeah it didn't look like Carl. yeah like not at all so stepping outside of that in my mind and in my psyche that was that was different and i think the thing that kept me from really letting my heart go for three years was my perception of the opinions of man how so hold I on perceive. hold on you said let my heart go for three years so you're saying that for three years you were just withholding yourself that that you felt like i can't fully surrender myself to him so it wasn't like he's waiting like you're waiting for him to pop the question it was like there was still some some heart tension there oh there were walls from both of us yeah we knew that our hearts were involved like i I knew that I loved Carl after dating him a year and a half, but I was determined that he would know that because (laughs) I was was determined because I mean, I valued my son and our dynamic to the point where I wasn't that woman that had men running in and out. Yeah. In fact, he didn't meet my son until we had dated for nearly the full three years. Oh, wow. Before he ever met him. Because That's I was good. determined I needed to expose this kid who was looking to me. I was his one safe, soft place in the whole world. Mm, that's good. It was me. And so I was responsible for exposing him to that which was wholesome yes. and solid and good. And I had to know that I knew that this guy would stay, even though he had proven to me that he would stay. Let me tell you something that most people don't know. My little raggedy car I had at the time, because, you know, I was a single mom and I was working and I was making it happen. But it was a junk heat. It was. It, all right. I already said it was a junk heat. Watch yourself. So it was. It was a junk heat. But that thing, it just crapped out altogether. This man took me to Redbird Nissan, mm-hmm. walked me up in there from the showroom floor, and bought me a brand new car while we were dating, and I had not given him any real commitment. Now that, that sold me. Yeah, you think? Because women was, want security. Yeah. It's like, go ahead, finish that. And it, it just sold me. And, and from that point, I started to really kind of let my walls come down. I was like, this man is not even getting like, to be really honest, the physical yeah, really from me. Because yeah. I'm like, you know, I'm kind of like keeping this thing at arm's length. Yeah. But he met, I mean, he met a felt need. He, he knew that there was a need there. My son and I, you know, needed transportation to get him to daycare. I needed to get to my job. And not even being my husband, he started to take on the role That's of a husband. That's what I was about to say right there. Yeah. That's what I was about to say? Yeah. And I want you to say it. Carl, why? Well, I knew I cared for her, and I didn't want to see her rolling around in a junkie. <laughs> so I thought I would fill the need. Why'd you have to go to that extreme? Why can't you just go to a little auction and get a nice, nice little used car? I didn't trust used cars. I mean, I wanted her to have a new one. I didn't want to have to go all over town and rescue her if the, new, <laughs> the car broke down. Oh, you have a motor. So, yeah, he did, it for, he did it for himself. He said, I'm going to get you a nice brand new car for me. Yeah. I don't want it to be. So, you ain't got to buy the <laughs> So, you got to be. Drunk. Not true, but, I, you know. You, after you've rescued a few people in the middle of the night from having junky cars, you, you kind of get over that. 
Did you know that doing that would speak volumes on the level that it did? Uh, you know, I had hopes in that. You said I had hopes. <laughs> How would you have felt if you did all that and still didn't end up winning her? Would I you feel like it was that. a waste of time? Well, it's never wasted time, but uh, it would have been a learning experience in the other direction. <laughs> in the other direction? Yes, I love that. He said it would have been a learning experience in the other direction. <laughs> that was a good one, man. That was a real good one. Thank you. That was a good one. So when he did that, you said y'all were dating, what, a year and a half? Um, no, that was closer to like about, about two years, about maybe. About two years. About two so y'all were two years point. in this thing. Yeah. And then did you start feeling yourself? Because I know you said about three years. It still yeah. took close about three years for you to fully surrender and be like, all right, yeah. I'm finna, it's us against that the world. That was around the time I introduced him to my son. Um, I introduced him to my mother. Uh, I prepared a dinner uh, at, you know, where my son and I were living. Uh, we Hold were on, living. Cassie can cook. I just want y'all say. I just want y'all know that. I'll testify to that. But let me tell you something. If Cassie ever invites you to her house, know she's gonna have so much food that you're gonna be like, "Who are you feeding? Like, what is this? We feeding everybody in Africa? Like, she'll just she'll cook so much food, and everything is amazing. And so you cooked. Dinner. I cooked him a meal. He had been taking me out, and you know he didn't know if I could cook, you know, because I wasn't trying to be, you know, too, you know. <laughs> I was not. I was like, you know, he gonna earn it, he gonna work for it, and and that spoke volumes to me that you know he cared that much. So I made a nice meal. I invited my mom and my aunt, who were the two most influential women in my life. My father had passed by then, and introduced him to my mom and my son, and my mother, who rarely ever. There weren't many men that I had ever brought home, but rarely ever did she like anybody. And they were able to talk and it was seamless and it was easy and it was peaceful and even a little spiritual at times. And I took note of that. And that night, I knew that my walls were coming down. In fact, I would say that night I probably fell more in love with him mm. because of the way he handled himself and the way my family received him. How'd they receive him the first time? Um... Now, some of them, you know, they were like, I ain't with it. I don't mind you knowing, <laughs> dude. They told him that? Yes. I'm just going to let you know to so your I, face. I, met, I met some of your family at your birthday uh, dinner that you had a uh, yes. couple weeks ago. Yes. So I, I was know. known as that white man. Yeah, <laughs> for years, years. Now, you I'm, over there with that white man. <laughs> I'm like, really, y'all? He has a name. His name is Carl. They're like, that's your call. But, you know, he that white dude. He better not mess up, you know, because my family's from West Dallas and Oak Cliff. Yeah, I, I met him at the, at, the, yes. at the dinner. I was like, oh, this is this is where she come from. Yes. I, said, I, I was like, and the first thing I thought about was like, oh, I want to know how Carl handled this because they're very vocal. But, you know, one by one, you know, they he won them all over by just being his consistent self. Yeah, I mean, and that and that's like my whole like you know mode of op operation. You know, consistency. Just consistently be who you are. Yeah, and people will either conform or they won't. Yeah, but he was just himself. I mean, I I can truly say he didn't try to go out of his way yeah. to win anybody. He was just Carl, and they saw that through him consistently just being true to who he is, just being consistently kind and and generous and nice to me and my son. And they saw that there was no change in yeah. that, and and they all love him now. I mean that that's their brother, Carl. 
you were fathering an African-American boy at what age? How old was he when y'all first started kicking it? When you actually met him three years into the relationship? He was he was a little past a year. I mean, he was very young. When I first met him, he was older than that. He was like probably about maybe He was two. almost three. He was three after we were dating three three years. Right, so I August, didn't meet him while we were dating. Right, you didn't. So he was right. <laughs> so he was about almost two, three. Yeah, about two and a half. So y'all, so so that's interesting. So you've known him pretty much his whole life. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was Santa Claus before he knew who Santa Claus was. <laughs> True, he was. I was putting his toys together at Christmas, and I hadn't even met him yet. Right. I was like, um, I need you to get these screws together on these wagons and put this tricycle together, but you need to be gone, you need to be gone. <laughs> you know, by a certain time <laughs> so he didn't see you. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I yeah. love it. I love it. I love it. So how did y'all go from y'all friends? Now y'all said um, we're dating each other. What made y'all say, you know what? And how did that happen when it was, I want you to be my wife? Well, I realized that I cared more about her than I did anything else, including myself. Mm. And at that point, you know, I said, you know, I'm sorry. We're starting with a foot in the ditch, but let's go ahead and get married. Where were y'all at? I was living in an apartment in North Dallas, and she was living with her aunt. And how did the proposal go? It was just a conversation face-to-face, -face or it was just a... Well, I got down on one knee. He okay. got down on one knee, but leading up to that, I mean, we started dating, so I was spending a lot of time in his apartment. I started changing his apartment little by little. He <laughs> literally had a carburetor or whatever that was. What, what was a supercharger? My, my living room On his my, dining room table. my car park I said, this storage ain't work. area. <laughs> this can't work. I said, a supercharger, the, on, the one table you have, you got a supercharger on it. Where are you going to eat? Because I cook. And we're going to need to be able to sit and have food at the table like a family does. <laughs> he came home from work one day. I had got in that apartment, and I had changed things. And so what happened was I was spending more and more time there, and we were kind of engaging as a family. And... I knew deep within me that the more time I spent there, you know, the closer we were getting. Yeah. And what I always knew, my absolute deal breaker was that I would not shack. Yeah. And I had what made me know that I was getting very, very Hold close on quick. to him. Y'all heard she said she will not shack. So stop shacking up with me and hit that subscription button. <laughs> <laughs> subscribe y'all subscribe yes subscribe. so I, I just knew that you know i wasn't interested in you know you know giving him the benefits of a wife without being a wife yes and so uh, i said no i won't shack with him and i had left a few outfits over there that's how much time my son and i were spending you know i get off work and you know we do dinner at his place and we were just there more and more often so what i did was he came home from work this particular time and i had taken you know the few little outfits that i had of mine and my son i had packed them up and the little things that I had left around to decorate I had you know just kind of left so our presence you know our absence was very obvious yeah and he called me he said is everything okay I said yeah everything's okay I said but the one thing I promised myself and my son was that I would not be shacking and I said you know the more and more we're spending time together I said you know it's becoming more and more serious mm. and that next day 
he came to my aunt's house. I had my own place and my aunt says, you know, girl, you know, let, let that, you know, when the, when the, when the lease runs out, you know, you are working, struggling, come over here and live with me. This yeah. is my aunt who never had children. I was kind of like the daughter she never had. And so I said, fine. So my little lease ran out of my son and I moved in with her. And so we had left the apartment and he called me and he says, everything okay? I said, yes, I don't want to shack. So the next day he shows up when I get off work and he says, I know that I love you. I feel like you love me. And he's got out on one knee and he was emotional. And he says, I want you to be my wife. Ooh. And of course I was emotional as well um, because I couldn't deny the fact that I didn't want to continue my life without him in it. Yes. Of course I said, yes. And then here was a caveat. He said, okay, I want to do it in two weeks. I said, boy, are you crazy? I have planned my wedding since I was 14 years old. Are you out of your mind? Two weeks. And in Baton Rouge. And then he said, Ed, yeah, I want to do it in two weeks at my at my mom's house. I was like, you done lost your mind. Fool, you crazy. I mean, rolling the neck and everything. Oh, God. And he was just like looking at me emotionally. He said, no, I'm really serious. He said, I don't want to wait. He says, because I want you in my life. Mm. He says, I want us to be together. He said, and you know a thousand people. He said, we can't afford a wedding with a thousand people right now. Okay. Let's just go and get married in my mother-in-law's house. And I was like, well, why come we can't get married in my mama's house? He was like, I'm just asking you, this is my, my way of involving my mother yeah. in our marriage. And I said, okay, fine. So we got married two weeks later. Two weeks in later. In Baton Rouge. At my mother-in-law's house with my mom, his mom, my aunt, who I was living with, and uh, I think a cousin and maybe a niece or nephew. Yes, so very, very intimate. Of course, my son yeah. was a little ring bear. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? My son took um, a liking to Carl pretty early on, um, but my son was very emotional when we were married because he was already thinking of Carl as his dad. Mm. And, um, of course, when we married, that only grew. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you go through the whole, you know, elementary school mm -hmm. age, you know, and grade school and all of that. And you being this very dark skin, you know, little chocolate kid with this white man as your dad. And so he had to kind of work through the racism around that, you know, well, where's your dad? Yeah. And it wasn't that his dad was absolutely absent. It's just that he and I did not have a palatable relationship right. at the time. And it, it just wasn't feasible. Right. And Carl was very, very vocal and very present about the fact that I don't care about the, the color of his skin. This is my son. Yes, yeah. I see his skin. Because I say, I, I think when people say, you know, I'm colorblind, I think that's very discounting of people. Yeah, it is. So what you're saying is that you're discounting that person. Yeah. How is it that you don't see that they're <laughs> fair skin or that they're dark skin or yeah. that they're black or Hispanic or white? Of course you do. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so he would tell people, you know, the teachers, you know, whoever, this is my son. If there's a problem with my son, then there's a problem with me me you there need to is. address me and not address him and so you know he had his own you know uh um racism that he had to overcome and and navigate he he was a jock you know he was uh athletic and so we go to the games and they would address me and not address Carl as his dad. Or, you know, they would have like, you know, parent, you know, uh, parent, child, you know, d dads and donuts or whatever. Yeah. Carl would show up and they would ask, uh, uh, Sergeant Covey, where's your dad? 
even though he walked through the door with yeah. his dad, he's seated next to his dad, he's interacting with his dad, but Carl was never considered or rarely considered his dad. And so that gives a, a kid kind of unnecessary duress to have to navigate. How did you feel, Carl? Oh, I just, you know, I don't take other people's opinions too heavy on myself. So, so you really that unbothered? I let them do what they're going to do, and then if they really have a problem, we can get with them. <laughs> why, why, why call a thug? I ain't, I ain't no call. Oh, you got a little thug in him. You got a little ratchet. <laughs> Carl said, "If they really do have a problem, then we can do, we can go escalate this night to the next level." Yes. <laughs> yes. But yes. that's hard. So you're you're going to, and that's what a lot of people uh, talk about. And we never ever talk about that part. If you marry a woman that already has a child, a black woman, and mm -hmm. now you're a, a white father to this black child. Mm -hmm. um, most of the times when we talk about it, whereas people left comments about why don't y'all talk about interracial um, um, kids, mm -hmm. you know, which is your daughter, Camille, mm -hmm. of saying, you know, the struggle that they go through. Mm -hmm. But I never ever thought about what does it look like outside of foster care, you know, mm -hmm. by me being a foster parent. What does it look like to be a white father to a black son mm -hmm. and that dynamic in, in the school age setting and be like, how are people looking at y'all? You know, are they looking Crazy. at him like there's a like you ad adopted him or something? Is this yeah. a little kid from Africa that you adopted? You know, yeah. And people have said things that you know, you know, insane. Yeah. To my son, I mean that unthinkable. I mean, and and even worse, people have said things. Adults addressing a child, you know, in a very mean and, and inconsiderate manner. No, what would they say? I want people to hear it. What would they say? What would an adult say to a child? This black boy who has this white father, what is something that comes to mind of something that they said? Well, um, one of his teachers said to him on one occasion, um, it's really sad when white people have to adopt these little black boys when their fathers aren't present. Mm. And my son, who is highly intelligent, without a thought, responded to her, I have the love of two dads. Mm. My dad is very much alive, around, and present in my life. But the man who is my father, who shows up for me, happens to be white. And he was around maybe nine when he articulated that. I didn't have to say a word. He handled that. But I bet you don't called up to the school, oh, did you? Check oh, check it out. Lord Jesus. No, for certain. Cassie, what I you did do? address her separately. Cassie, what you what you say to that lady? <laughs> we will hold that for another time. I am not proud. I'm not I love God. I love him. But I'm telling you, just because a person doesn't use expletives don't mean they don't know the words. Okay? She said, yes. the told your son that, man, that is crazy. That is absolute crazy. Yeah. So now you, um, so y'all have a child mm -hmm. and y'all have an interracial child. Dope, dope daughter, Camille. Uh, she just got married. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she was actually in one of my plays and that's where I got a chance to work with her. Mm -hmm. uh, really dope individual. What was her journey growing up as an interracial child? What, what, what stuff were y'all dealing with from her standpoint? Well, much of the same. I mean, uh, hers was a little different. And, you know, little girls would ask her, well, well, which are you? Are you more black or are you more white? Mm -hmm. Well, which do you identify with? Do you identify with white or do you identify with black? You know, and always, you know, trying to require, you know, a mm -hmm. choice or a decision. You know, her to make a decision kind yeah. of thing. Um, she wasn't 
white enough for the white girls, yeah. wasn't black enough for the black girls, you know? And so having to deal with that thing, little mm-hmm. black guys, you know, favoring her over more brown girls because of the waviness of her hair or, you know, her complexion, yeah. thinking that, the, you know, it's that whole age old light ice is colder mm-hmm. kind of thing. And ice is ice, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and it's that inner racial thing that, yeah, you know, a lot of do. black people yeah. have as well, you know, where we, we more kindly entreat lighter or fairer skinned yeah. African-American Americans than we do those who are more brown or certainly those who are dark. Yeah. And then from both sides, her interaction with her brother, they're inseparable. Oh yeah. They have like yeah. a beautiful dynamic and relationship, but you know, constantly asking her, is that your blood brother? Mm. You know, or is that your half brother? That kind of thing. People show up in people business a lot, huh? I just well, realized yeah. I've yeah. never even thought to ask people some of that stuff. I mean like oh, yeah. people really be in people's business like that. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't I mean, even care real. that much to ask people out. <laughs> Seriously, seriously, it's it's just you know people can be very unkind and very inconsiderate Mm. and mean to children. Adults can be very mean to children, both within your family, within your circle of of friends and network, and and strangers alike. People can just be something else. Hmm. Mm Hmm. That's 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 interesting. It's like because now I'm starting to think about how much I don't think about that, and it's like wow, like even when she was doing the play with me. I never ever thought about, you know, I just, mm-hmm. it's just, that's what I've always known. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it was just like, that's your daddy. You know what I'm saying? It mm-hmm. was like, well, what does it feel like to have a white dad? You know, what does it feel like that you're, it's just, I just never ever thought about that. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. it's like, ah, that's, that's, that's interesting. But I'm, I'm loving this conversation because it's providing reference to those who do think about it, that they feel like the choice of someone else's lifestyle is somehow impeding on their own. Uh, which is which is absolutely crazy. You about to say something? I was, and I, I was just going to say, when you're raising interracial children, and certainly when you're in a blended family, I think it's incumbent upon the parents to really address the racism head on, Facts. and to address it more quickly than later. Yes, um, because the, you know there's racism from within the family, and sometimes you don't realize the discrimination that you know you're kind of uh, imposing upon children as adults, because you know black aunties and uncles will say things like look at you girl you got that good hair mm-hmm. and look at you Kobe. i see you got a few waves coming in mm. you see that line of demarcation yes. right there you just made a line of separation between my two children and what you did was whether you realize it or not you platformed her a little bit higher because she looks different yeah. not better just different yeah you know and some things we good we hair. espouse to being better when they're really just different mm-hmm. because i'm sure you and i can think of fair-skinned people who are not very attractive <laughs> Facts. they're just fair-skinned yeah you know what i mean yeah. and the same with brown or dark yeah so why does that have to be the defining line but i think the parents have a keen responsibility to address it both with the children and with the family members because we've had it even from carl's side uh his dad his biological father had remarried wasn't his mom and had remarried and the woman he was married to unfortunately was extremely vocal vocally racist she just was so needless to say we spent very little time around her <laughs> I because i didn't trust myself not to handle her <laughs> yeah yeah in every sense of the word yeah so the few times we spent around her it was just very very surface this particular time i think she was just in rare form she looked at jacoby and in the presence of camille and said hmm you're not first anymore bless your little colored heart 
And when I tell you, I use the queen's language well. <laughs> oh, I blessed her real good and put her out my house. Oh, but, she's at your house. Oh, yeah, I put her out my house. But immediately, it forced me to have to address an issue to with my son and my daughter to have a hard conversation at an age where I should have been bought a little bit more time to have yeah. to have that conversation. Yeah, that's true. So that kind of thing does happen, and you have to address it. It's the follow-up that counts. Yeah. It's the follow-up like that counts. going to happen, but the follow-up is what's most important. Yeah. What do you say about um, where they um, I've had people make comments in the past saying marrying someone outside your race, they'll never understand the black struggle. They'll never mm -hmm. understand what it's like to be black in America. Um, what would you say about that? I may never fully understand it, but I've got a glimpse of it. And and so I'm super compassionate about the whole issue. Yeah. I mean, the way African-Americans have been treated in this country is terrible and continues to be terrible. Right. But um, a lot of Caucasian people don't, don't see that. So they don't, they're not conscious of it until they become conscious. Once you become conscious, you can't forget it. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah. And what, ha and when you about to say something, what, what, what have you done to, to help blend that, that knowledge or to give him that knowledge, uh, Cassie? Well, I mean, I, the truth is he won't really understand what it's like to be black in America yeah. or the struggles of African Americans. I was hoping you would say that. I mean, he couldn't because you have to live it. Yes. You have to experience it. You know, this skin that I'm in is my isness. Yes. I get to walk around in it all day, every day. Yes. I get to navigate, you know, all of the complexities of it because it's who I am, you know, and I wouldn't want to be anything else. However, but um, there is a struggle. There is, you know, a lot of um, bad information that we have to navigate. I think a lot of white people choose to arm themselves with bad information. Yeah. Because I think all of life is about choices. It's about, yeah. you know, making a decision. And so you can choose to either believe something or do the work to find out differently. Yes. And a lot of them choose to be comfortable in their ignorance. Yes. You know what I mean? Just as many African-Americans choose to be comfortable exactly. in their ignorance. I think everybody is responsible black white and different is responsible for their own learning take responsibility for your own learning if you don't know something about a person it's easy to just assume yep. it's easier to assume than it is to do the work to find out the truth and that's just where I am with it. You know, um, being an African-American woman married to a white man does not in any way mean that I've turned my back on my people. I, exactly. I get, you know, that a lot. I mean, that's thrown at me by a lot of African-American men who don't understand, you know, me or who don't even know me or understand my reasoning behind, you know, what God did. I tell people all the time, this is a God thing. I would have never chosen Carl as my husband had I been choosing for right. myself, but God knew what I needed. And I got to a point in dating him where I asked myself, is there any other reason why this would not be the man of your prayers and that, that did, you pray for? I did pray for a wife right before I met her. Mm. And I tell people that it took me three years to realize he sent me exactly what I prayed for right away. 
Isn't that crazy? It is. I, I feel the same. You know, I had to get out of my own way. I had to fall out with my own ideal about what marriage looked like. I had to like. fall out with my own idea about what marriage looked like. Yeah. That's what this whole journey is for me. It's 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 for me to say, listen, I I thought I knew. I thought I knew everything about marriage. I thought that I knew what was best for me. Mm -hmm. And now it's like I, I, I've gotten to the point where I say, God, let thy will be done. Mm -hmm. And to say, hey, listen, uh, God, whatever you have in store for me. Now, still, by preference, I want an African-American woman. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I love black women. Yeah. Uh, but, I don't even say but. God will be done. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, and, that's, and, that, and that's the reality. And so, um, yeah, I feel like, and so my own personal thing, and and, and I've had uh, white women slide in my DMs, and they be like, "Hey, can I take you out for coffee? Can you do this?" And and my first response is, "There's no way I could do all of this work that I'm doing and then go give that to a different race." Mm -hmm. And I said that I want to because when we just look at the percentage of African American women to black. Man, that's why now I'm 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 a proponent for mm -hmm. black women to go date outside their race. So I'm mm -hmm. like y'all need to go find some because if you just if every black man decide to marry a black woman, it'll mm -hmm. still be a whole lot of single black women. Mm -hmm. So I say go date outside your race, uh, find love. I always I always say don't go date a different race out of uh, self hate for your own race. Well, exactly. all black men are this way, so I'm gonna go get me a white man because they gonna love me. I, all, all black women, they loud, they mean. Like, like they say. That's a great point. Yeah. That's a great point. And I, I do want to interject something. A lot of people assume that, you know, I've turned my back on African-American men or my race by choosing a white man. Yes, One, no. he chose me. Talk about it. Two, I didn't choose him. God chose him for me and fashioned him for me and had to work it within me to deal with my perception. There it is. About marriage. Number two, I love black men. I'm still very much attracted to black men. Facts. I cannot guarantee that if God forbid something were to happen and I wasn't married to my husband, that I wouldn't end up with a black man because it's never been about self-hate. There it it's is. It's never been about hating my race. It's always been about what God fashioned for me. There it is. Yeah. There it is. And that's where I stand in full support of interracial couples and marriages to be like, Y'all chose love mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, it can't be because even if you choose, quote unquote, love out of self hate, you're still not choosing love. Right. You're choosing fear mm -hmm. because you're so fearful of whatever this reminds you of that. Mm -hmm. Now you go operate in fear and you call it love. And that's not that's not cool. Uh, and so I'm, I'm 10 toes down with anybody to say, no, nah, listen, I love my people, whether you white, I love my people. But I found this woman. I'm madly in love with her. Shoot. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Choose, mm -hmm. you know, and be intentional about it. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. And one thing that I love about people who decide to go against the norm and say, I love her so much and it's a risk loving her. An another added risk. Love is already a risk as it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm going to add another layer of risk to love this person because now I have the world looking at me and they're already praying for the failure of it. They mm -hmm. like, oh, they told us straight up front that we wouldn't last six months. We had people that six came months. to our, now we did have a huge wedding reception, like more than 600 people. It was ridiculous. Wow. My family was half of them. Okay. It's like <laughs> tribes of us, but there were people who showed up at our wedding reception and would say to us, said to us, to our faces that they gave us six months. One couple said to us that they, they gave us about three or four weeks. God, no. They said we were just too different. 
They couldn't see us making it. And unfortunately, every couple that said that to us, we've watched it. None of them are together. Isn't that crazy? And one of them, unfortunately, his wife um, is deceased. And it was it was very violent, you know, car accident that happened. And I'm just like, you just have to be careful well, what, you, what you put out there. Yeah. You know, what you put into the atmosphere. How you do know? you come to my reception and then tell me, right. ah, yeah, I give y'all about a good six months. Oh, I give y'all a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> like, isn't this supposed to be a celebration? You done made it a funeral. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. You know, I mean, just, you know, that kind of craziness to overcome. But we were tenacious and, and we were just, we've been resilient, you know, through it all and enduring love. Yeah. You're not taught. Y'all's marriage has suffered a lot of challenges yeah. uh, in the health department um, by way of Carl, by way of you. Let's talk about that. Carl, what are some of the health challenges that you've endured? Well, I've had two uh, complete open heart surgeries to, um, the first one, they replaced a valve. Uh, the second time, there was an aneurysm, and they went in and replaced the same valve again the second time. And I had uh, kidney cancer, so I had a partial kidney removal. And uh, so it's been a little challenging. Over what period of years? When did the surgery start happening? The first one was 98. The second one happened 14 years later. And then about a year and a half after that surgery was the cancer surgery. God, dog. What's that like going through that as a wife? Certainly was a test of faith. Um, just my faith in everything, my faith in God, my faith in, you know, my ability to, to stand fast, you know, as a wife, um, those are not the kind of things you think of when you think of, you know, this blissful marriage and this blissful union and this happily ever after you don't factor in, in sickness and in health yes. for better or for worse. Yes. Um, and so we certainly have seen, you know, the worst we've seen, you know, you know, the, the sickness we've seen the Valley experiences, but it also developed something in me that was kind of always there, but it strengthened my mm. ability to fight. Yes. You know, just, just by nature, I'm a fighter. I, I'm not one to give up very easily. I don't give up on my friends and my family and the people that I love. You know, I have a very, very high mercy gift. I mean, my, my, hurt, my mercy gift is huge. But when you're facing the fire and you're sitting in a waiting room for nine hours and the doctor finally comes out and removes his mask to say he's going to make it. Mm. He's going to be okay. And you're a fairly new wife. And then. Oh, that was at the beginning. That was at the that beginning. That was 98. We were married in 92. Mm. And so here I am, you know, in, in this real deep battle. I mean, this is not believing God for a headache. Nah. You know, this is open heart, serious surgery where, you know, the fatality rate was, you know, um, pretty high. Yeah. The survival, you know, percentage was around 30%. Yeah. And then I had to stare that thing in the face and just believe God mm. Mm -mm. and hope that, you know, with this new man coming out of this surgery, what, then what does that mean for our marriage? How was our marriage different? How is it different physically? How is it different emotionally? How is it different mentally? Because all of that affects all those areas, it sure does. you know, but we made it because we made a resolve. I'm going to tell you this. We made a resolve when we first were married. I remember the night we went back to our suite that we were married. We said, we're taking divorce off the table. There it is. 
We took it off the table. I said, I don't care how pissed off I get with you. Sorry for saying pissed off. I don't care. You know, how angry, you know, you may get with me. We're not going to divorce. We're going to figure it out. So I have that in the back of Mm. my heart, in the back of my mind. You know, I I have to figure this out. And I just, I have this resolve that I'm going to stay. I'm going to stand by my husband. And it tested my ability to be a caregiver. I had never been a caregiver. You know, other than to anyone other than my father. My father had cancer for a number of years, and so I knew what it meant. But that was my dad, so I had a level of love and honor for my dad. But I'm a new wife, so I had to care for him and be patient with him and nurse him back to health. And so it developed a lot of faith in me, and uh, it developed a lot of fight and tenacity in me. I want to, I want to, I want to ask you this: You're six years in a marriage, and you still say I was a new wife. Why do you say that? I mean, six years, you know, I still feel like we were honeymooning. You know, <laughs> things were going wonderfully. I mean, I, I mean, this man has treated me extremely well over these 30 years. And six years in, I mean, he was still doing everything. I mean, flowers, gifts, trips. I mean, he, he was just a consummate husband. Mm. And so this health thing just kind of came quite suddenly. I'll tell you what, he was a flight instructor. So when he found out that he had an irregular heart murmur, um, he was teaching people to fly, flying around in airplanes, could have went into anything Mm. at any time, but God's hand was on him. And so he went to his normal flight physical to get his physical every year. And he said, I hear a little something this time. That was a Tuesday night. He came home that Tuesday night. We're lying in bed. He said, yeah, he said, at my flight physical, because he's never been good about telling what's really going on with <laughs> Most him. Most men not. <laughs> health-wise. Men be sitting there, and you be yeah. like, how'd you die? Oh, I died yeah. yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be like, what? Exactly. <laughs> it was no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my flight physical, he said I had an irregular heartbeat, so he's going to send me to a cardiologist. And something within my spirit knew that it was deeper than that, and I prophesied to him. It was all God. I said, it's more serious than what you realize. In fact, you're going to have to have surgery. That was Tuesday night. Thursday, we were sitting in the, in the cardiologist's office. And the cardiologist had done all of his tests and everything. He said, well, he said, I got some good news and I got some bad news. He said, the good news, we caught it early. He said, the bad news is you're going to need open heart surgery. So he says to the man, oh, you mean like within a year or so? He said, no, I mean in two days. That's mm-hmm. a lot to take in. Yeah. So he goes, you shouldn't have prophesied. <laughs> <laughs> you spoke something on me. I said, boy, I didn't speak anything on you. You better trust this. This is God speaking through me. I am his mouthpiece. Okay. <laughs> so the roles have been reversed in times. Um, you've dealt with some health issues as well. What are those health issues? I have. I have. I was... Um, we were young into our marriage again. I had had some issues with endometriosis. I was mm-hmm. diagnosed, was very young and um, like around 15 or so. So I'd always had like fibroids and stuff like that. But around our first, we, our first child that we were pregnant with, um, we lost a baby. And shortly after that, uh, I found out that I had uterine cancer. Mm. And so he, you know, was just stellar, you know, was just right there, just that constant, you know, nurse helping me to be, you know, my best self and, you know, get me back to health. And then not very long after that, about five years, uh, discovered that I had uh, breast cancer. 
and um, you know, just walking through that whole thing, and 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 both instances never had to do any real chemo or anything like that. There were both instances where God healed me, mm. and so just giving us that testimony and 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 going through that trying time of having to just trust Him through that, we grew closer uh, as a couple. That's what I find so encouraging is that you can look at a couple and you think that everything is just fine and dandy. Mm -hmm. But what has created that bond and forged that that union over time yeah. is the constant submission to one another, the constant covering of one another, the constant nurturing and protection and caregiving of one another. A lot of people want marriage, but they say marriage ain't for the faint at heart. You know, um, it's for people that are really willing to die daily uh, so that your marriage can live. Um, you know, I could talk to y'all all day. Let me tell you something. I would be remiss if I didn't have Cassie, <laughs> the worship leader, the songstress. Cassie was also on The Voice. If y'all are fans of The Voice, y'all, this beautiful face is very recognizable. Um, Cassie, when you think about your love story, you think about your journey, I want you to sing just a, you know, 30 seconds to 60 seconds of a song that you believe represents this enduring love. Could you do that for us? Could you bless the people? Oh my goodness! Can you can you bless the people? Render us an A selection. Yeah, render. Oh my uh, A selection. A selection. <laughs> <laughs> Told you, you said. Oh my God! Well, this little song, you know, it's just I don't know, it's just in my heart. Love, a word that comes and goes, but few people really know what it means. To really love somebody, oh, love. That's all I know, y'all. Ain't that a shame? That's all the words of the song I know. Hold on. Where, what is your affiliation with, with Kirk Franklin? My affiliation with Kirk Franklin is I was a member, an original member of Kirk Franklin and the family. And of yes. all the songs he's written... I absolutely love that song yes. because he's right. So few people really, really know what it really means to love somebody because love is enduring. It's yes, so it's so beautiful. Yeah. You know what? You, you, you gifted me. Ah, come on, somebody. See, what y'all don't know <laughs> is during the pandemic, uh, you've been doing this, this chicken salad for a while, but you got yeah. really hot and heavy with it mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And Cassie don't live close to me. She live on the side with money. I live on the side with broke folks. Get your life hey, man. So <laughs> I drove an hour for this good old chicken salad. I actually helped create the logo for it and all this stuff. Yes, yes. that's right. Yeah, so Cassie, when she walked in, I knew that she hears from God. You know how I know she hears from God? It's because she brought me this chicken salad. And it was such an honor to see that she's like built this brand. Because uh, at first it was just in a, in a little plastic container and all mm -hmm. this now she got packaging together and it's amazing mm -hmm. um what made you go ahead and just take this to the next level 
Well, you know, we had had uh, a bit of a cult following. I mean, people yes. would taste it, and they're like, you know, I really like chicken salad, but most people's expectation is that it's going to be the grandmother's all yes. mayonnaise, heavy-laden mayonnaise, yeah. you know. But it's not that, you know. It's made completely different. We roast the chicken, then we smoke the chicken, we pull the chicken from the bone, mm. all the chicken, the whole chicken, the dark meat, the white meat, the wing, all that. Mm. We chop it up, we add our herbs and spices to it, and uh, it makes it our special concoction. But what made me go to the next level with it is that when we launched the website, people just started buying it from all over the place. And I just thought, you know, I want to take the packaging to be a little bit more professional and to present it to where we're ready to go into stores. And so thankfully, within a few weeks, we're going to be doing exactly that. So, but, um, you know, you helped me a lot to develop my logo yes. and to just really push it on after and go further with it. So, so Cassie didn't know I was going to do this. I said, ain't no way you're going to give me this chicken salad. <laughs> and as much as I love my, my, uh, supporters that I don't introduce y'all to the best ever chicken salad. So y'all make sure y'all go to the website at besteverchickensalad.com and blow their minds. Oh I want y'all to just flood. I want them to just mess up your whole website. Just just, just mess it up because they get so many orders. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are you saying, Rihanna? Oh, you want me to hold it up? <laughs> I held it up first. See, see how Rihanna getting on to me? I'm not used to being a QVC person here. Right. This is the best ever chicken salad. Make sure that you go besteverchickensalad.com. 32 ounces, two pounds. All mines. You can have it too. Visit besteverchickensalad.com. Is that okay, Rihanna? Yes. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah, she over here about to throw something at me. But listen, man, it's been an honor to have you. How can people connect with you? Carl, you on social media? No. You ain't on those Instagram. <laughs> he is. He on Instagram. He one of them people just got probably just be snooping on other people's mm -hmm. pages, huh? Mm -hmm. Just hers. Just her page. Well, how, how, can they, uh, how can they be connected to you, Cassie? Yeah, on Instagram is Cassandra Music. Uh, same with uh, Facebook. My full name, Cassandra Robertson, or Cassandra Music. Cassandra Music. Yep. Listen, y'all give it up for this dynamic couple. Uh, I've been enjoying talking to y'all. Y'all give it up for the Robertsons, y'all. Ladarian thrusted suddenly into Child Protective Services in 2015. My nephew, black, a boy. The likelihood of being adopted outside of kinship, slim to none. Armani, 16 years old, black, a boy, with five years in the foster care system before I even knew his name. The likelihood of ever being adopted, yep, you guessed it, slim to none. While Ladarian and Armani were trying to survive and barely thrive in an overpopulated and underfunded foster care system, I was living my own life, doing well professionally, Having been a single father with a daughter who at that point was doing well in college, it was my time to live my life, right? Wrong. I felt unsettled, tireless, agitated. There are just too many of our black children stuck in ambiguity and in the limbo of the foster care system. In 2017, I legally adopted my nephew, Ladarian. Fast forward to 2019, I had no ties to this other young king, but I felt God instructed me to adopt him also, and I obeyed. Starting over with parenting should have been enough, right? Working with various foster care and adoption agencies to help bring awareness to the countless young black kings in the foster care system should have decreased my agitation, right? Joining the board of directors of Advantage Adoption, an organization that helps find permanent adoptive homes for children in foster care should have led to some type of resolve, right? No, not at all. 
none of it felt like I had done enough. I now realize that every one of those experiences was laying the fundamental foundation for my life's mission, Kingdom Royale. Kingdom Royale will be a luxury, state-of-the-art home for foster boys. Our first location will be in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. We will utilize the whole person approach that instills identity, empowers them to advocate for themselves, and enlightens them regarding new perspectives and limitless options that they thought were impossible. Though the young kings will attend the local public schools that are in proximity to Kingdom Royale, our at-home curriculum will broaden their worldview through participating in the arts, attending various cultural events, learning about and engaging in multifaceted discussions about current events and even relevant historical contexts, introducing them to gardening and landscaping and even caring for our animals on our farm and on-site stables. We just launched our startup capital campaign with the goal of raising $2.8 million. Now, why $2.8 million? Well, in 2017, I created a web series in which I performed random acts of kindness for targeting the homeless community. One of the most notable successes was that one of the videos went viral, garnering 28 million views. However, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't raise a single dollar to help in implementing a more sustainable plan for the homeless community. So throughout the years, with much remorse, I reflected on not maximizing that moment. I knew if at that time, just 10% of the viewers donated $1, we would have raised at least $2.8 million that could have really established long-term support for the homeless community, or at least started a long-term initiative to do so. This is my do-over. This is our new beginning. Together, we can attack this at the root by specifically helping our homeless black boys who are already disproportionately represented in the American foster care system. I'm LaTerris R. Whitfield. I've been nominated for three regional Emmys documenting my work with the homeless as well as my personal adoption journey. Despite those accolades, the greatest award for me is truly providing the infrastructure for a transformed life. Visit KingdomRoyale.com for more details. Crown a king and make a donation today. I told you we're going to talk about some things on the Dear Future Wifey podcast, man. It's been an honor to have my good friends on the podcast today. I mean, Cassie, man, she's she's a dope individual. Um, love her husband. Husband, I've just seen him just be so supportive uh, throughout the years and just loving on Cassie, uh, being a family man. It's just been a, an amazing thing to watch. Um, oh, yeah, September the 11th here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, we'll be doing a live podcast recording at Word of Truth. Make sure y'all, those that are in the DFW Metroplex, come check it out. Those that are um, not here locally, take a trip. Come to Dallas. I would love to meet you. Well, here's my favorite part of the podcast where I speak to my future wifey. Dear future wifey, love is you. Watching you lay beside me sleeping peacefully will mean the world to me. Protected. Covered. Secure. Knowing you can finally rest and find safety in our covenant is what this journey is all about. It's what this healing journey is all about. I want our touches of one another to not only be exclusive, but unique. 
Communicate with me in nonverbals. Love me with a smile. I'll say I love you with a stare. In moments when no words are uttered, our hearts are still singing and dancing in the spirit celebrating our union. I found me, and then I found you, your future hubby. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dear Future Wifey podcast. Remember, be lit, live intentionally and transparently, and don't stop loving. Make sure to subscribe to our Dear Future Wifey YouTube channel. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We welcome your support. Simply share our podcast with your friends and family.